0: in the US in the 1980s, this was a disease exclusively of the greyhound, and that isn't what we were seeing in in the UK. So what we did is we looked at our first 101 cases that we'd confirmed in the UK, uh, and we looked at them against a big population of primary care first opinion dogs, so almost half a million dogs. Um, And what we found was that hounds and gun dogs were the breeds at highest risk of being diagnosed with CRGB. So Labrador, Spaniel, Vizzlers, Whippets. Um, I think interestingly we only have one greyhound which is fascinating when you look back at that US data.
1: Hello and welcome to this Vet Times podcast that accompanies a webinar discussing cutaneous and renal glomerular vasculopathy, commonly known as Alabama rot. This winter marks 10 years since the first cases of Alabama rot in the UK. Since then, almost 300 cases have been confirmed across 47 UK counties. The disease has a 90% mortality rate. As research into the disease continues, we're joined by David Walker of Anderson Moores Veterinary Specialists in Hampshire. David is the UK's foremost authority on the disease, and in this podcast, He takes us on a journey from when it was first recognised in the US in the 1980s through to its emergence in the UK and trends seen with cases here. He also discusses the ongoing research. During this podcast, David refers to images and an animation in the webinar. This can be watched in our new Alabama Rock collection on Vettime CPD Plus alongside a gallery of images and additional resources. A link to the collection can be found in the show notes. How are you, David?
0: Yeah, very good. Thank you, Tom. Uh, thank you for inviting me to um, to this podcast today. Looking forward to trying to increase awareness of uh, CRGV some more.
1: Thank you for joining us because we're getting to what you might call CRGV season, aren't we? And this year, I don't want to call it a landmark, but there's a significant element of the fact that this year marks 10 years since we had the first case in the UK, doesn't it? Yeah, it's astonishing
0: how quickly that, that time has gone and we've learned so much about CRGV. Over that time period, um, but yet yeah, there's still still so much more to learn. Uh, you know, we, we've been on a journey. I think we've done incredibly well to increase awareness of the disease amongst veterinary professionals and, uh, and, and and the general public. So yeah, still a still a huge way to go. But I'm yeah, I'm proud of where we are
1: uh, after that time period. Excellent. So we're going to basically take a look back, see what we have learned over the past ten years, and where we're heading. The floor is yours, as they say.
0: Yeah, thanks, Tom. Um, so yeah, w- what I want to do is just take take on a bit of a journey um, from when the disease was first recognised in the USA in the nineteen eighties, all the way through to what we've been seeing with the cases in the UK, and then just at the very end touch on some of the the research that's that's ongoing currently. So yeah, so thanks again for inviting me along, Tom. Um, so the uh, the proper name for this disease is cutaneous and renal glomerular vasculopathy, but it's often colloquially known as Alabama rot. uh, And that's because a fair number of the greyhounds that were originally recognised with this disease uh, were from Alabama in the USA. Uh, And just as the the name implies, cutaneous and renal, uh, this is a disease that largely affects the skin and the kidney. Um, so what we'll talk about um, over the next 20 minutes, half an hour, is is what we used to know about CRGV uh, from the work that was done in the, the USA in the 80s, uh, what we've learned about the cases in the UK that we've been seeing over the past 10 years, just a little bit of uh, comparative medicine looking at um, similar diseases in people, uh, and then just a couple of slides at the end on, on what we don't know and what we're trying to Find out. So let's kick off with what we knew. Uh, so uh, we know this is a disease of the distal extremities. Um, so it causes skin lesions in dogs, uh, typically lesions below the elbow, uh, below the stifle. Uh, and along with those skin lesions, they may or may not have acute kidney injury. So the term we typically use now instead of acute renal failure. Uh, when it was reported out of the US, it was a disease exclusively of the greyhounds. Um, subsequent to that, there's been a single Great Dane reported in Germany in the early 2000s uh, and there's been one greyhound reported in the UK as well. There's a fair bit of research work done initially, um, but the etiology uh, remained unknown. So I just wanted to share one paper with you uh, that was published in 1988. Uh, so rather old now, just like me. Um, so this uh, looked at historical info and postmortem findings on eight dogs, all uh, greyhounds. Seven of those greyhounds had skin lesions and kidney disease, uh, and one had skin lesions only. As well as those eight dogs that have post-mortem, there's also some history and physical exam info on another 160 dogs. So 168 in total, but we've only really got detailed info on eight of those dogs Uh, Key thing is that they were all greyhounds. So that's really relevant when we come on to talk about the UK cases shortly. There was no sex predilection, any age range, six months to to six years. The key features from those uh, eight dogs that we had a bit more information on was that they had an anemia and they were thrombocytopenia, so low platelet count. And again, just keep that anemia and thrombocytopenia in mind when we come to talk about the UK cases. Uh, And histopathologically, um, when we looked at the kidney tissue under the microscope, they had what's called a thrombotic microangiopathy. So this is a, an occlusive microvascular disease, so basically blood clots plugging the glomerular arteries. Uh, and then they had something called fibrinoid necrosis, which basically is um, what it says, which is necrosis of the vessel wall and impregnation with fibrin, and then that thrombosis of the glomerular arterioles. So this is actually a really unusual histopathological kidney diagnosis, um, but that, that fibrinoid necrosis, the thrombosis, uh, are the pathognomonic features of other thrombotic microangiopathy. So that's what we we're seeing in the greyhounds in 1988. So let's move on now to talk about the, the UK cases, keeping in mind some of that information from, from greyhounds. So how did it all begin 10 years ago? Um, Well, so between December 2012, February 2013, we had four cases referred to us here at Anderson Walls Veterinary Specialist. So we're based just outside of Winchester near the south coast of the UK. Um, Now what's a little unusual is the combination of acute kidney injury and skin lesions. We we see plenty of dogs with skin disease, we see plenty of dogs with sudden onset kidney failure, but the combination of those two things together was a, a little unusual. And for the first case, I must say, you know, we didn't pay a huge amount of attention to that combination of clinical signs, and we just very much managed the skin lesions, managed the kidney failure in isolation. Sadly, that dog died, and in very short order, we had had another dog presenting with very similar clinical signs, uh, that dog didn't survive, and the owner kindly consented to post-mortem, and that's really when we started to gather more information. And what was fascinating initially is that all of these dogs were being referred from just outside the New Forest, so just from the west of the New Forest in an area called Fording Bridge that you can you can see on the map if you're looking at the images. So as I say, histopathologically we were starting to see this picture of thrombotic microangiopathy uh, in the dogs that were having post mortem. So we went back, looked at the literature, and thought, you know what, this this really does look like CRGV, um, cutaneous and renal glomerulonephritis. So at that point, we sent a letter to the Vet Times, we sent a letter to the Vet Record, uh, and we just. We were, A, trying to increase awareness of the disease, and also encouraging people to contact us if they were seeing anything similar. I also wrote a letter to around 2,000 local vets in Hampshire, West Sussex, Dorset, Surrey. Uh, And over that initial time period, so I suppose what we will call the first season, so back end of 2012, Uh, through to uh, spring 2013, we had 10 confirmed cases. So that's a confirmed CRGV case based upon histopathology. So they had a thrombotic microangiopathy, and then we had two suspected survivors. So we didn't have histopath in those dogs, um, but based upon the presentation, some of the blood work changes, we were pretty confident they were a CRGV case. And I think it's important to point out at this stage that these dogs had detailed work up, so we were confident that there wasn't another reason for the acute kidney injury like leptospirosis, uh, toxicity from grapes, etc. So um, this map here is a summary of all of the histopathologically confirmed cases to date. So we've had 286 confirmed cases over the past 10 years. Um, I'm sure there are others. Um, where we haven't had histopathology, where understandably owners haven't wanted to go to post-mortem, where maybe, again, understandably, it wasn't on a vetch radar. Um, and So you can see the geographical spread of those cases uh, on the map on screen. Uh, And and you can see there there are some interesting features, which is that uh, so eastern area, East Anglia, Norfolk area, there are actually very few cases. Uh, If you look at the west coast of Wales, uh, again, very few cases. Uh, and we'll come on and have a look at that um, shortly as to what the reasons might be. Uh, so this is uh, um, some data we published in 2018. Uh, so it's looking at uh, um, spatial temporal patterns and some risk factors for CIGV development in, in the UK. Um, and there are really three big things that we pulled out of this data analysis. Uh, the first was that there's definite seasonality to this disease. So 92% of cases we see between November and May. Um, so, you know, that helps us as clinicians, um, because if we're seeing a dog with acute kidney injury in August, then it's perhaps less likely to be CRGV. Uh, we also found that we were seeing some clustering of disease, uh, certainly back near the start. So in 2013, we had cluster of cases in the New Forest. And interestingly, many of those dogs were walked in the same place, uh, Ditto in, in uh, the Greater Manchester area in 2014. And from really digging down into the data, what we found were cases were generally associated with walking in a woodland. Uh, Pasture was the habitat least likely to be associated with developing CRGV. And the reason that's interesting is because historically people have said, well, you know, maybe this is E. coli uh, and therefore related to livestock faeces. Um, But yeah, dogs walking on pasture didn't seem to be associated with developing CRGV. Uh, and then an increasing uh, temperature in winter, spring, and autumn, uh, and increasing rainfall in the winter and spring are also associated with CRGV development. But none of these things in isolation are enough to cause CRGV. So just that climatic condition alone doesn't mean CRGV development. And that sort of played out with the distribution of, uh, of the cases. Um, because if it was just climatic conditions, then why is the West of Wales spurred? Why is the east coast of of England spurred? So yeah, so some interesting data came out of that paper. Um, So if we look at the cases from a clinical point of view, uh, then the vast majority present with skin lesions before the onset of clinical signs referable to AKI, so vomiting, lethargy, uh, anorexia. So skin lesions, and then they go on and develop acute kidney injury. The, The median time to acute kidney injury development From the onset of a skin lesion is three days, but there's quite a wide range. A small proportion of dogs will actually develop kidney failure before you see the skin lesions. So it's really important to be examining these dogs on a daily basis. Um, In around 19% of the dogs, they present with skin lesions and acute kidney injury at exactly the same time. The question then is, you know, have the odours perhaps missed the skin lesions? Uh, and then, yeah, in a very small number, they actually get acute kidney injury before the skin lesions are identified. The vast majority of the skin lesions, as I mentioned earlier on, are on the limbs uh, and just under three quarters are on the pads, um, the digit, um, or somewhere around the core. We do sometimes see lesions on the body, um, in and around the mouth uh, and on the head as well. So they would be the main areas to, to look at. But the vast majority uh, have lesions on their limbs. So I, I wanted to share some images with you now. Uh, I appreciate some of you perhaps listening uh, and not looking at the images, but I would uh, I, I would urge you if you get a chance to go back and, and have a look at uh, some of the images that I know will, will be available um, looking at these slides or... Uh, that times will kindly provide them via another form as well. So you can see the images on the, on the left-hand side. So this was a border collie that uh, had confirmed CIGV. And you can see it's quite an innocuous-looking uh, lesion. So we're just looking distal to the carpal pad, and it's just a, an exudative lesion. And then if you look below, that's after clipping and cleaning. And again, we've got some very superficial erosive lesions. Um, so as I say, relatively innocuous, um, that was what the dog first had, and yeah, two or three days later presented with acute kidney injury. Lesion top right is uh, is on the medial thigh, and that's a very well demarcated ulcerative lesion, and that's often what we see on on the limbs. Uh, and then the example bottom right is a Labrador, uh, uh, and over the rostral head, uh, you can see these again very well demarcated erosive lesions, uh, and and that mar- that. Uh, clear demarcation is often a feature that we see uh, in the disease. Mm-hmm. I just mentioned that uh, around 75% of dogs have lesions on their distal limb. Uh, and here's just some examples. Uh, so, a dog top left with a nasty erosive lesion uh, over a digital pad, um, a very um, aggressive mm-hmm. ulcerative lesion interdigitally uh, in this image, uh, bottom left, uh, and then another Labrador. Uh, with, a, with a nasty, erosive lesion um, yeah. over the distal fall limb. And again, you know, pretty well demarcated. Um, so that certainly is a, is a feature to look out for. So those images were, I hesitate to use the word milder, um, but you can see why I use that word when you then look at these two images now. So incredibly extensive pathology uh, in these two different dogs. Um, over the scrotum, prepuse, uh, distal hind limbs. Um, there's erosion, there's ulceration, there's exudation, uh, there's some necrosis in that image on the right hand side as well. Um, so, yeah, just giving you a flavour for the range of lesion that we can see from single isolated, well demarcated lesion through all the way to um, disease that involves the whole limb. So, I just wanted to share a little bit more data with you. So, this was another paper that we published in uh, uh, 2018, and it was looking at signal and risk factors for CRGB in dogs in the UK. You'll remember that I mentioned that in the US in the 1980s, this was a disease exclusively of the greyhound, and that isn't what we were seeing in, in the UK. So, what we did is we looked at our first 101 cases that we'd confirmed in the UK. Uh, and we looked at them against a big population of primary care, first opinion dogs, so almost half a million dogs. Um, and what we found was that hounds and gun dogs were the breeds at highest risk of being diagnosed with CRGV. Um, so Labradors, Spaniels, Vizslas, Whippets. Um, I think interestingly, we only had one Greyhound, which is fascinating when you look back at that US data. Uh, there were no toy dogs uh, in in those first 101 cases. Uh, female and to dogs were more likely to be diagnosed with CRGV, and the average age was four years. So what we were starting to do was build up a bit of a picture of you know, what might a CRGV case more likely look like. You know, so trying to help um, vets in practice say, well, it's a Labrador, it's December, it's got skin disease, it's got acute kidney injury, you know, CRGV is probably going to be creeping up the list. If it's a chihuahua in August, um, then Yeah, CODB is probably going to be dropping down the list of possibilities. So just moving on to look at some path data. So you'll remember back when I was talking about the greyhounds, only eight cases, um, but anemia and thrombocytopenia were a feature of their diagnosis. uh, And we were seeing similar in many of the dogs in the UK. So 28.7% were anemic at presentation. Almost 85% were thrombocytopenia at presentation and over 50% of hyperbilirubinemic at presentation. So again, I'm always thinking, what information can we have to say whether CRGB is more or less likely? And actually, now you can, you can start to build that picture. We've got the seasonality. We've got some breeds that are more likely to be affected. And if on your clean path, you're seeing anemia, thrombocytopenia, hyperbilirubinemia in the face of skin lesions and AKI, you know, your top three differentials are CRGB, CRGB, and, and CRGB. What about outcome? Uh, well, the median time from development to skin les- the development of skin lesions to euthanasia is, is only six days. So it's a pretty rapid deterioration to, to euthanasia in the vast majority of these dogs. But there is quite a wide range from one to, to 49 days. Capturing a survivor and saying a survivor is definitely a survivor is a little challenging because we don't have the histopath. So we would call a survivor survive on the basis of skin lesions, kidney failure, and and some of the characteristic blood work changes. Uh, And there are definitely some dogs out there that do survive this disease, um, but mortalities are at around 85 90% when you have skin lesions and acute kidney injury. So unfortunately, it's it's very high. Um, Some dogs have had a technique called plasma exchange, uh, where in the most simplistic form, you take out the plasma and you replace it with healthy dog plasma. Uh, there's been some data published on that after the RBC. It was six dogs, two survived, four didn't. I don't think we have enough data at the moment to say whether or not uh, that's a, a beneficial technique uh, for these patients. Uh, and as with any dog or cat that develops acute kidney injury, a proportion of those patients will be left with chronic kidney disease thereafter. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of a flavour for what we've been seeing in, in the UK cases um, and allows you to build a Bit of a picture of what a um, a CRGV dog might potentially look like. I just wanted to spend five minutes talking about potential uh, human comparators. You know, so what can we learn from from human medicine that might help us understand more about CRGB and ultimately, therefore, help more pets? Which you know, which is what this is all about. So I mentioned this thrombotic microangiopathy, which is the histopathological change that we see. Um, And and this is a process where you get damage to the endothelium of blood cells in the kidney. So the endothelium is that inside lining of the blood vessel. And when you get damage to the endothelium, then platelets are attracted to that. So you get this platelet clumping, and that's what's probably driving the low platelet count in, in the bloodstream. So that's what causes the thrombocytopenia. Uh, And then when you get that platelet clumping, the blood can't flow through, so you get ischemic damage to the kidney or the skin, and you get kidney failure, skin necrosis. Some of those red cells try to force their way through that platelet clumping, and they get damaged, and that's where we think uh, the the anemia is coming from. So it's a microangiopathic uh, hemolytic anemia. So that's what's actually happening from a pathological point of view. Um, In people, then the histopathological diagnosis of TMA uh, is a feature of a number of specific conditions. Um, So just to name three of those, so hemolytic uremic syndrome, atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome or complement mediated hemolytic uremic syndrome and thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura so they're the big three conditions in people that can cause thrombotic microangiopathy but we in people you also see TMAs with things like cancer sepsis and chemo so rather than go into vast amounts of uh, human medicine detail, I just wanted to share a little bit of info with you around the top two. So, HUS and AHUS or Atypical HUS, because there are, there are certainly features that are very similar to, um, to what we're seeing in dogs. So, to talk about HUS first or hemolytic uremic syndrome, this is a disease that's triggered by an infectious organism and most typically it's E. coli. Uh, What happens in people is they tend to have a diarrhea prodrome, so they have diarrhea for about a week, uh, and then seven days later, they develop hemolytic uremic syndrome. So as it says on the tin, hemolysis and uremia. Um, In people, it's most common in the summer, so not quite fitting with uh, our CRGB seasonality. Uh, and what it, it tends to occur sporadically or in small geographical clusters. So by way of an example, in Germany in 2011, uh, there was a big outbreak of HOS, 855 patients affected, sadly 35 died, and when they did some epidemiological analysis, it was linked back to an organic farm that was um, growing bean sprouts. Um, so yeah, often in people uh, with the E. coli link, it's uh, it, it related to, to, to an event like that. So I've just got a couple of animations just to show what happens uh, in uh, in people when they have um, hemolytic uremic syndrome. uh, But also this quite nicely explains what's happening um, in the body with this thrombotic microangiopathy. Uh, So again, apologies if you're listening. But if you have the time, then do have a look at these animations because I think they explain it quite nicely. So what we've got here at the top is the gut uh, and we've got the E. coli in the gut. What happens is the E. coli produces something called lipopolysaccharide and something called Shiga toxin, which as it says, is a toxin. The the lipopolysaccharide damages the gut wall uh, and it allows the Shiga toxin to move through the gut wall where it attaches to a neutrophil. That neutrophil then moves into the bloodstream uh, and off it heads to the kidney. So you've got this Shiga toxin bound to the neutrophil that finds its way into the kidney blood vessels. The receptors on the cells in the kidney really like Shiga toxin, so they bind it really tightly. And then the Shiga toxin is taken inside that cell where it causes irreversible inhibition of protein synthesis, damages the cell and ultimately kills it. The cell dies and what's happened is the basement membrane is exposed. Platelets love the basement membrane, uh, and they stick to it. And you get this uh, thrombus uh, within the kidney blood vessel, which, as I said earlier, then causes ischemia. So it causes tissue death because basically the blood flow in the vessel is, uh, is stopped. Uh, and again, it then fits as to where the thrombocytopenia is coming from, because all those platelets are being used in in the kidneys, uh, and the anemia comes from the damage that the red cells get as they try and force their way through that through that platelet plug. So that was HUS, um, and then the the other disease I just wanted to mention is aHUS or atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome. So similar name, but this one isn't infection mediated. So HUS, E. coli related. AHUS, non-infection mediated. Uh, And and the the pathology comes about in this disease of uncontrolled activation of complement. So you'll remember that complements that are the immune system that helps antibodies and phagocytic cells clear organisms in the body. And when you have uncontrolled complement, then it damages the glomerular endothelial cells and and you get those platelet plugs um, that I was just talking about. What we know happens in people with atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome is that it's generally the inhibitors of complement where the problem lies. So it's the things that normally put the brakes on the complement system. And what's fascinating in people is that people can be born with genetic abnormalities in those complement inhibitors, those complement brakes, but they don't get disease until later on in life. And it's thought that there might be an environmental trigger. you can see why i'm interested in this because we've got these dogs who develop disease when they're around four years old so maybe they're born with a problem they come into contact with an environmental trigger and they develop the disease in adulthood and what's really interesting in people is it doesn't happen very often but occasionally as well as getting the kidney disease with atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome and all the blood work changes that we've talked about they also get skin lesions it's a phenotypically looking identical to, to our dogs. What about canine thrombotic Um Well, we know CRGB is a TMA uh, and hemolytic uremic syndrome has actually been reported uh, in five dogs. It's only five dogs ever, but it has been reported. Uh, four of those five dogs had a diarrhea prodrome. Unfortunately, they didn't manage to identify E. coli shiga toxin in any of those dogs. But recovery of the toxin is quite dependent upon timing. Um, HRS has also been reported in some other species, so horses and rabbits, uh, and in those species, they've had more success uh, in identifying uh, the sheba toxin. So it's just a little bit of a comparator for you. Uh, and then finally, what don't we know? So we know more than we did, but we still don't know. Is this a novel disease? Uh, is CRGV the same as HUS in people? Is CRGV the same as atypical hemolytic syndrome in people? Or is it something else? What I wonder is whether actually CRGV is a bit of an umbrella diagnosis. You know, Maybe within CRGV, there's some dogs who have hus type disease. There's some dogs that have an atypical hus type disease. What's fascinating is there's no knowledge of cases prior to 2012. So we did a little straw poll where we contacted as many veterinary dermatologists and as many veterinary medicine specialists as we could. And we said, you know, were you seeing these cases before 2012? This all seems a little odd. And, and they said, no, which suggests that, you know, this is an emerging disease process. So if we go back and think, well, you know, could there be an environmental trigger? We know that lots of the dogs that develop disease walk in woodland. We know the seasonality, we know the climatic conditions. You know, is there now this ecological niche that's been created for some sort of microorganism uh, that, that is the trigger for this disease process? Mm-hmm. Unanswered question. Um, what's fascinating is there's a population of dogs out there with CIGB that don't develop AKI, and we saw that in the Greyhounds back in the 1980s as well. Uh, so there's a whole range of disease, uh, and I'm sure plenty of the dogs with who develop skin lesions only? We never diagnose those with with CRGV because we're not biopsying the skin. Understandably, we're certainly not biopsying the kidneys. So, so that's fascinating. So there's a big yeah, there's, a, there's a big population of pets out there with this disease that probably we're not recognising. And then what's also interesting is that um, in some households, there was a dog affected by full blown CRGV, so skin lesions, kidney failure, and the other dog in the household developed skin lesions at the same time. Now, from a temporal point of view, the skin lesions were developing at a similar time. So it's probably not dog-to-dog dog to, dog, dog to dog transmission of anything, but obviously dogs in the same household tend to be doing the same things. They're going on the same walks at the same times, so they're having those same environmental contacts. So it's not every dog by any means, but certainly there are plenty of dogs out there where there's an in-contact dog in the house who develops skin lesions at the same time. We haven't got time to talk in detail about how we're managing these dogs, um, but what we don't know is what the optimal management is. At the moment, we are intensively managing their acute kidney injury. We're managing the skin lesions um, and all of the other things that, that go with AKI, anorexia, hypertension. Um, so, yeah, we're still trying to learn what the optimal management might be, and that's going to come from better understanding the, the pathophysiology. Um, so, as I said, at the moment, we're... We're we're treating the AKI, um, but if we can find the underlying cause, then can we treat that? Could fresh frozen plasma help? So that would come back to atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome and this problem with complement. So if we give fresh frozen plasma, we're giving healthy complement and healthy complement inhibitors. The problem is, as you know, dogs with acute kidney injury often can't tolerate volume. Um, so it's not always great to give them product. And that's where plasma exchange could come in useful, where you take out the unhealthy plasma and all the unhealthy complement inhibitors and you give the healthy complement inhibitors. Um, could she get antibodies help? Well, maybe if this is E. coli mediated. Um, in people with atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome, they use something called anti-C5 antibody. Uh, so basically it's an inhibitor of complement, costs about a quarter of a million pounds a year, probably not going to be viable for our canine patients. Uh, might immunosuppression help? Maybe, uh, again, in people there's some evidence that the, um, the damage to the complement inhibitors is caused by an overdrive of, of the immune system. Uh, we haven't done a controlled study, but we have given some dogs uh, immunosuppressive therapy at uh, Anderson Moores, uh, and it hasn't changed their outcome. So what next? Uh, so there's quite a lot of work going on. Um, we're really keen to look at the complement system and that work has, has started. Um, and hopefully you can understand why, based upon what I talked about in atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome. Uh, We're really keen to better understand the epidemiology of this disease still, Uh, and we've recently closed a questionnaire study and are analyzing that data. Uh, There's a PhD student at Surrey University doing some great work on metabolome and and microbiota uh, to see if we can learn more that will help drive the research even further forwards. And there's a link on the slide if you'd like to learn more about that work. So hopefully that's been of some use, giving you a little bit of a flavour for the journey uh, over this past 10 years, uh, has given you hopefully a better feel for for what a CRGB case might look like, especially if we come into uh, the 2022-23 CRGB season. Um, And if you do have any questions, then please do feel free to fire those across to me on email. David at com, or I'm sure you can get in touch with the Vet Times uh, and the questions will
1: find their way to me that way. So thanks very much for listening. Thank you so much, David. It's absolutely fascinating just to kind of see the history and how it's evolved and developed the understanding, but also how there's still so many avenues to go down to hopefully finally crack the code, essentially, and work out the cause, the identifying factors. It's incredible.
0: Yeah, absolutely, Tom. My aim here has always been to increase awareness, get as much information as I can into the scientific literature, because you know, this is never going to be solved by one person, one centre. Um, you know, and that's really, we, we've worked hard to collaborate with other people, universities over the past 10 years. And you know, we, we just want to carry that on because the more people that are working on this, uh, the more likely we are to get answers.
1: Fantastic just to echo what you said at the end there if any questions do come via us or this webinar or the collection that we put together then we will certainly pass them on and do what we can to help and spread the word david that was a fantastic insight thank you so much for joining us
0: thanks again for inviting me tom